February 13th, 2007. This is episode one of Potterfic Weekly. Welcome to the place where the story never ends. Thank you for listening. This is Potterfic Weekly. I am Rena, and here with co-hosts Ryan and Kim. Hey, everybody. Hello. And uh, we're going to introduce ourselves a little bit first, tell a little about ourselves and our background, and then we'll get into our discussion of our first fic. So a uh, little background on myself. Uh, like I said, my name is Rena. I came to fiction through a Phoenix Song website. I'm a beta there, and... I've been reading uh, Harry Potter fanfic for about three years, which I'd never really done that with a story before, so I can say that it was really odd after the new canon would come out. I would have to remind myself that, that this wasn't just another story I was reading, that this was the real deal stuff that was going on. I haven't had that happen to me yet. I came to fanfiction right after Half-Blood Prince. I had decided to read all the books right before Half-Blood Prince came out, and I read them too fast, so I had about three weeks left, so I started reading through them again, and then Half-Blood Prince came out, and I read it twice in the weekend it came out, and I was just feeling like I was getting started with Harry Potter, and I have nothing left to read. So right. I, I think I went to uh, Sink Into Your Eyes. I went to their yes. into their library, and I started reading one-shots. And they kind of helped me get over, you know, the... The, the week after, you know, there was no new uh, canon to read. And the more I read, the more I wanted to read. And it, it just went downhill from there. And um, I started reading fanfics while we were all still anticipating the third book to come out. So that would have been about seven years ago. Wow. Um, I came into the fanfiction world through fanfiction.net. That's still my favorite site, the one I use the most. And I read a lot of one-shots and an occasional chapter fake here and there. This particular podcast and its current incantation is a combination of several ideas. I had an idea about a year ago, actually, to do a podcast that focused on fan fiction, not necessarily reading it and characterizing it to publish, but to just discuss, you know, what makes fan fiction good, what makes it bad. You know, different good stories that needed to be highlighted. And then Ryan had a similar idea a few weeks ago, and we started talking about it and decided to put this thing in motion. And then we decided we needed a director of technical support, (laughs) and Kim volunteered to do that. So this is how we've all uh, come together here. Yeah, because I must say I didn't even know what a podcast was until you mentioned podcast on that thread, and I went and saw what they were. You had to Google podcast to see what it was? Yes, I did. Okay. That's and awesome. That, and that's how we got of technical support. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to uh, work on this project was I am addicted to my iPod. I bring it with me everywhere. I'm constantly listening to podcasts on you know any subject that interests me. I really have gone into fanfic so much over the last year and a half that I really want to discuss it with everybody. And I'm one of those people that 
the minute I read a book, I make someone else read it. And every time they turn a page, I say, what did you think? What did you think? What did you think? What do you think is going to happen? And I tend to, you know, harass people quite a lot. And then, you know, they file restraining orders against me. So I, re- I really want to enjoy fanfic with other people who have read the same fics or who are interested in the same ideas that I was. And if you just look at the way the world has changed over the past 50 years, we used to have three television channels and now we have 500 and there's a way to break things down and find people in the world like same things that you do and who you can share all that. So I really want, I, I started looking for podcasts or communities that really got down and analyzed fan fiction, the best fan fiction from every different level. And I found absolutely none that did that. Uh, like Rena said, there are many podcasts out there will read stories to you. They will act them out. They will pick, you know, one shot of the week and say if it's good or bad. And I tended to disagree with a lot of their opinions. And I figured if we, <laughs> I, I disagreed quite strongly with their opinions. So I figured if no one else is doing it, let's do it ourselves. Yeah. Which, you know, hey, that's that's how this uh, world got to where it is right now. This is true. Uh, bef- before we even go any further, there, there's many people we'd like to thank for helping us uh, pull together and helping getting this podcast uh, started. Well, I want to thank Perry and the Potters for ever so wonderfully letting us use their music in our podcast. I, I think, is it, is it safe to say you're one of their biggest fans? Oh, I'm not one of their biggest fans. I wasn't one of the sixth grade groupies that stand in the front and knew every word to their songs, but I do like their music. You do like their music. <laughs> and, of course, we want to give a very large thank you to the wonderful Arabella and uh, Zinya for allowing us to use these particular stories of theirs in our little adventure here, because without the story, this would not uh, be a podcast. I was so, so we nervous. we have to give a big... Thanks to them. Oh, we definitely will. We definitely do. I was even nervous to contact them. I felt like, and this is not an exaggeration, I felt like I was actually writing an email to Joe Rowling saying, would you mind if we talked about your work? You are such a fanboy. I am not a fanboy. <laughs> I'm telling you, there, 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 are, okay. there, there, there are people, you know, who write stories who I will, you know, just send emails to. Hey, I liked your, your, your one shot. Thanks for writing it. These, these two people have written such an amazing there was no question this would be the first fic I wanted to discuss and just talk about with other people who have read it and just break it down and really examine it. But they have just written such – they are just they, – they have done what so few people I have found have done. And I'm still somewhat new here, so maybe I'll be you know, very impressed by others I'm not familiar with now. But they have just done such a great job with this fic that I'm just – I was very excited to, 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 to uh, speak with them. And, and I just want to echo that and just thank them very much too. I'd also uh, really like to thank a fan artist. Her name is Leela Starsky. Her website is maythemusebewithyou.com, uh, M-U-S-E, maythemusebewithyou.com, uh, for allowing us to use some of her fan art on our website, potterfickweekly.com. Uh, I urge everyone listening to uh, check out her fan art. She does a tremendous job. She really brings these characters to life, and I enjoyed uh, looking at pretty much everything on her website. I think I spent a night doing that. So I just want to thank her for her generosity in letting us use some of her artwork um, on the show as well. And I would also just like to uh, 
thank very briefly. I would like to thank Jen on our forums. Now we're obviously recording our first episode now and it hasn't obviously been released yet. Jen has been posting on our forums for the past week and she has, I believe, what did we figure out? 20 times the amount of posts that both yourself and uh, Kim do. Yes, that'd be right. So we just want to thank her for her enthusiasm. We said in the beginning, we hope we get at least one fan who really appreciates the show and the show's not out yet. And we already have a fan girl. So exactly. We would just like to thank her very much. And before we get into any discussion, here's a lovely disclaimer to add to everything. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not reflect uh, Warner Brothers, Raincoast Books, Scholastic, Bloomsbury, or J.K. Rowling. We are not intending to make any copyright infringement, and we apologize if anyone uh, takes it as that way. All the stories we are discussed are based on characters and situations created and owned by J.K. Rowling and her various publishing companies. No money is being made, and no copyright or trademark infringement is ever intended. Yeah, what she said. Sound like you've done this before. I just want to cover the uh, legal bases, things like that. She doesn't want anyone to sue her and take her cell phone away from her. <laughs> yeah, because that's about all of value that I have. Oh, I, I've used that line many times. Come at me, <laughs> take my cell phone. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, in tonight's episode, we will be discussing After the End by Arabella and Xenia. You can find it on the sugarquill.net. And we will be discussing the prologue through chapter three uh, in tonight's episode. For someone like us, and you're busy, and you have kids, and you have school, and you don't have a lot of free time, and you're looking for a good fic to read, read it along with us. We're going to be discussing certain chapters each week and uh, analyzing them. We're not going to spoil what's to come. In fact, uh, Kim, you're up to what, chapter 10 in this fic? That I am. Okay, so we're not going to spoil it for Kim either, so uh, right. read, it, read it with us. Uh, I, If you're listening to a fan fiction podcast, I'm assuming maybe you've read this fic already and you like it just as much as uh, we do, read it again with us. Pick up things you didn't pick up before and just enjoy it with us. So if you haven't read the prologue through Chapter 3, we urge you to uh, go do that now. And we'll be moving on to the uh, discussion section of the show now. This story uh, is available at SugarQuill. It's also available on fanfiction.net. Um, it's also available, there's a Yahoo group that's dedicated to this particular story that was created at the time that this story was written, which um, it was written after the publication of uh, Goblet of Fire. So um, it's been around for a while, and uh, if you go to the Yahoo group, it actually has an option if you want to read it in a more book-like format. Pages are set up and everything. And uh, they also, they've since they finished the story, various uh, Arabella and Zanya and various others have written outtakes and little pieces that they've added in to the story since its completion, and those are also available at their Yahoo group. They actually are available on Trick or Quill, too, and we're going to put the links to all of that on our website, potterfickweekly.com, so you can just go there, and we'll have links to everything you will need to uh, read this fic with us. Just a reminder, the story is rated R. So we hope you will enjoy the discussion. We certainly enjoyed reading this story. So let's talk about the prologue. The prologue, I have read it three times over again. And just to back up, I've read the story uh, once a year and a half ago, and it's always stuck in my head. This is my first read-through of it. And I think like so many others, when I read a story, I tend to read it very uh, in a very relaxed way. I don't obsess over reading every word. I don't study it. I just enjoy it. But... Going back over it for the podcast, I really 
examined every word. I really thought about it. I really tried to do my homework on it. And it's so much better than I remember it being before. Uh, and I really liked it before. Um, it starts, and, and this is one thing that Arabella and Xenia do so well. And there's so much like J.K. Rowling in their writing style when they do this. They drop you into the middle of a story. They give you no indication of what's happening. They give you no indication who's talking, what they're referring to. It's as though you were literally, you're eavesdropping on a conversation and you don't know where it started. And this prologue, I think, just expresses that so well. Just the way the story starts with the words, I swear to die for you, Harry, I love you. You're right at the climax of the story. So many fanfics, which I've read, have started you off just like J.K. Rowling did, you're at the beginning of the story, you go through the middle, you hit the end, there's a big climax, there's a big battle. That's the story. Arabella and Xenia start at the moment the climax is upon you, is upon the characters. And they walk you through. Arabella and Xenia, each of the people who mean the most to Harry, essentially saying goodbye to him, essentially summing up their entire relationship with him in just a few words at the at what they believe is the last time they may ever see each other. One of the reasons I love this fic so much is that in most stories that you see, you have the beginning of the story, you have the setup, you have the bad guys, you have the conflict, you have the problem that the hero must go through. And they grow, the people around them grow, people are lost, and at the end there's a large climax to the story some people die some people live the story ends you learn a lesson and then you usually have if it's a novel maybe a chapter or two of cleanup you have an epilogue saying you know how everyone went on with their lives and the story ends yeah and it sounds very much like from what we know from joe rowling that is going to be how deathly hallows will end it's Right. It's be a huge book. There is so much left to do. We're not going to get everything in. We're going to be debating this for years. But that's that story. <laughs> no, we, you know we are. You know we're going to yeah. be doing this. You know our great can- grandkids are going to be. You know the hosts of the show someday, and they're going to be. You know we're <laughs> going to be the guest stars, and Kim will still not know where her sound preferences are. But you just know that's going to be something that's that's going to happen. There's going to be so much uh, left to talk about. And what I love about this fix so much is it is all cleanup. There, right. there, is, there is so little actual action to this story. And when it comes in, it is written in such a curious way that they make you work for it. You have to work in this story to understand what's happening, to piece it all together. And it's just so much right. fun to read. But it's the trauma. Okay, Harry defeats Voldemort. Many people live, some people die. What do you do the next week? What do you do the month after? What do you do when for 11 years no one has cared what happened to you, and then for seven years you're the most wanted man in the world, and every day you think you're going to die and take everyone you care about with you, and then it's all over. He has never been anyone else. Mm Mm-hmm. And well, see, and another another good thing about the story is it's almost like it's. I mean, J.K.'s J.K. Rowling's books are almost going to end off. Where Harry's life is really going to start, right? Well, there, uh, this this series is almost starting up at that point, right? It's- I mean, right. In the first chapter takes place, I believe. The, I, I just finished chapter three today, which is as far as we're going to talk about on this podcast. 
we're only a week after the battle. Yeah. And there is so much cleanup that has started, and the characters are just coming to grips with it. And it's this is this entire story is the characters trying to live after. And I I don't want to make a lot of political comparisons, but compare compare it to the war in Iraq. We had a six week war, and now we've had four years of cleanup. And the war Mm -hmm. and the cleanup are so entirely different. And you can't in terms of messiness. It's always going to be the cleanup. It's very easy to break things. It's very hard to put them back together. And that is right. just a, and one of the reasons that I love fanfic is that there is only so much Joe Rowling can write. If she wrote a 20-part series, she could get this all in. She's writing a seven-part series. So there is so many different layers to these characters that we're only going to get through fanfic. And that's, I'll be a fanboy again. Arabella and Xenia, I'm naming a child after each of you. Wow, that's impressive. I'm going right out there. Yeah. I'm announcing. You better check here. with Danielle on that one. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure she'll be fine. I'm sure she'll be fine. You know why? She can name, you know, the next two and then I'll name the two after that. How's that? So there, there you go. And then we'll have as a long qu- as she wants six kids. Exactly. We'll have a Quidditch team. <laughs> we'll have a Quidditch nice. Team. You know, right. you need seven for a Quidditch team. I can help. I can I, I can be there. <laughs> Doesn't everyone want to be the Weasleys? I, I want to be of the course. Weasleys. Of course. Who doesn't love the of Weasleys? Of course. Who wants to be Percy? And I think, yeah, exactly. Rest in peace. I think that the, the Expecto Sacrificum prologue, um, there's the whole, you, you see them going through and building the spell that, you know, when you jump into the, the story, you really don't know anything about this spell. And it's not like, there's any kind of exposition that explains anything about the the spell. It just all of a sudden, bam! Here we are in the middle of it. And, and it's interesting too, just to add, you don't even need to know why the spell is there. You don't even need to know the background plot. It's just very interesting to see how each character repeats the same words to Harry. I swear to die for you, Harry. I love you, and it means something different to each of them. For Hermione, she is hopeful, she is determined. For Ron, he's grave, his voice is raspy, and he, you know, is holding it all together. Remus is the mentor, feels a responsibility to look after Harry, and he's swearing to die for Harry, and he knows Harry could very well die in the next few minutes, and he just has tears in his eyes. Sirius is raw with emotion. He will never again lose another friend and he is the godfather but he has such difficulty with that role and he sees harry as a friend and especially jenny she will not take no for an answer she is no nonsense she has a necessary element is what the story calls it and you know that means love and it just it's so interesting we don't know why they're saying this but we know they mean everything they're saying and they all mean it in such a different way right and even even to the point of like chapter three, we still actually don't know what this is leading up into. We just right. read that chapter, and then they jump straight to the summer. And it's only say- later that you learn that that was right before the final battle, and that I mean that the authors keep you reading by keeping you guessing. And it's interesting because I've read the story once through, and I'm starting to read it through again. And maybe I'll, I'll understand this better when I get near the end of the story. I can't tell you exactly where this takes place in the story. It's, it's, I can't, I, I know it's, there's reference to at the end of the, of the prologue that within the next few minutes, they could all be dead. And this could be either the beginning of 
their new lives or this could be the end of the lives that they have now and the end of their world. But I really, it's interesting because I just can't even place where they're standing or where they are. All that they give you is just how the characters are responding to what they're saying. So it's, it's just a, it, it, it grabs you right from the beginning. And I think that that's one of the things that makes this particular story and makes these authors so good is that in this setting, in this prologue, when they're describing this um, ceremony that's happening, when they're laying the spell, it doesn't matter that you don't know where they are. It doesn't matter that you don't know when they are. It All that matters is what they have written here. And, and that is what makes this a truly great story is that you don't notice and you don't really care that you don't have all the information because the information that you have is enough for you to go on. And that's all they give you. And it's exactly what you said. They're only going to tell you what you need to know. And one thing I just want to point out in any Harry Potter fic, Harry deals with his hero complex and he takes it in one of several different ways. He does not, believe that anyone else should be near him because they could be injured. He doesn't understand that maybe they want to be there. Maybe he realizes just that enormous weight he has on his shoulders because maybe he does want them around. It does recognize he needs them. Each author takes it in a little bit of a different direction, and that's why I love reading different fix so much, just to see how different people interpret um, the many faces of Harry. Well, I mean, even, even J.K. Rowling did that herself with Harry and Jenny in the book. I mean, Harry Harry pushes Jenny away because he doesn't want anyone near him because he feels like he's a walking time bomb. Same with uh, Tonks and and Remus in in Half-Blood Prince. He pushes her away during most of the book, and you just see the effect it has on her. She's a shadow of her from herself. And it's so interesting because Joe has so many different devices in the books that she uses to let us see inside the characters. You know, the Mirror of Erised, the Bogger, the Dementors. It's so many different plot devices that let you get inside these characters and visualize what makes them up for the, for the sake of the audience in this chapter, we have a spell that if someone means it, if someone loves Harry, if someone is willing to die for Harry, Harry will feel apparently a burst of magic. He will be able to augment his magic with theirs. It's a sacrifice they're giving him. So it's one thing for Hermione and Ginny and Ron and Sirius and Remus to say, I love you, Harry. I'd do anything for you. And you know Harry, he won't believe it because they're more important than he is. It's one thing for them to say it and to feel it and to get absolute proof of it. Right. And I think that's just one of the strengths of this chapter. It's one of the few times that Harry cannot doubt it. He may doubt whether he's worthy of what they feel, but he knows exactly what they feel, each and every one of them. Yeah. Well, that and it gives a scenario for a scene that we've all wondered what actually happened in the books. I mean, everyone, I mean, we don't have much information at all about the nights Harry, Harry's parents died. And this, I mean, this fic kind of gives us an idea of what may have happened. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the love that people feel for each other, and it's it's one thing to hear it, and it's another thing to see the character accept it. Harry was too young to know what his mother was doing. We don't know what Lily did. We don't know who was there. We we we're, we get fragments of dialogue from his darkest memories. We don't know what happened at Godric's Hollow that night. But we do know what happens right before this final battle. We do know the choices that people make, and each of them makes it, and each of them makes it for a different reason. Right. And it just—it was so moving too, just to when they all gather together 
and they all hug, and someone knocks over the light, and nobody cares, and they just hold each other because this is it. This is either the end of everything, or this is the beginning. Right. And it's so interesting because in terms of what's hard, beginning again is hard. If it ended there that night, they would have done everything they could, and it's so hard for these characters to actually win that night and then have to put their world back together that was destroyed. Yeah. It just, it, it blows me away. I, I can't recall reading another, I've enjoyed many fics and we're going to read them here and pull them apart and analyze them. I, I never have enjoyed just jumping into a fic as much as I've enjoyed this chapter. And then we have this, this great dramatic scene and then it flips and all of a sudden it's, they're outside and it's bright and it's sunny and everything's over. And there's just this kind of, this sense of like, what? Yeah. It, it's kind of Something like Something worked. Something worked. We don't know what. Right. Something must have worked. Something worked and we don't know what. And so now it, it draws the readers in and it kind of says, okay, now what? Because obviously the story lasted longer than the prologue. So there had to be something for people to come back and read. Wouldn't that be awful? And so, wouldn't it be awful? If yeah, I know. Chapter one, they <laughs> all died. Like, thank exactly. You, for reviewing. you know, so we have this prologue and it's just kind of, you know, it doesn't really give you any more information. It, it leaves you guessing. It's kind of like, okay, what, ha, ha, how did we get here? And I'm how so did happy, this happen? And I'm so happy you just said that too with, um, w- with the part about, you know, it flips, the story just flips. Okay, everyone gets together. They hug. This is it. Group hug. We're either going to make it or we're not. You would expect if they make it that you're having parties and that everyone is jumping for joy. We made it. We beat the odds. And everyone's quiet. And they even remark, it's never been this quiet before. And they just sit. And all you can think of is something went wrong. Somebody died. Yeah. All you can think, and that's what you're supposed to think, because you're conditioned when you read these things to think that either you're going to lose and you're going to die, or you're going to win and you're going to party. And one of the strengths of the strengths of this fic is that you win, but you lose, and you just have to deal with that, and you just have to go on. So it's so you never expected that. You never expect to just be quietly around the lake, and maybe everyone made it, but it's it's just it's a sad time. Yeah. It gives a really very realistic outlook on how people behave after a war, not just what children think around and think, okay, yay, let's party. We've won, but it, it tells the truth of what actually goes on. And it's so interesting in the way it's written, too. It reminds me very much of um, the end of Half-Blood Prince during the battle at Hogwarts. The way Joe Rowling writes is that you don't know who she's talking about. And she plays on your expectations and she plays on your conditioning. And if you read that chapter, if you read that battle, you don't know who is there. There's a blonde wizard. There's a large wizard. You don't know who's talking to who. You don't know where people are standing. You don't know which direction they're running in. You just don't get it. And it really just jumped out at me reading this first chapter how you don't know who's speaking. You, it begins with Harry sitting on the steps of the castle, looking out at the lake. And somebody's there with him, but you don't know who. And you, at first you begin to question, something must have happened, who died? Ginny's up in her room. The person speaking is hungry, that must be Ron. 
there's somebody else there. Right. That must be Hermione. <laughs> no, I did this. I had, to, I had to read this over three times to say who is who and who is talking to who. And it's not Hermione said this. Ron said this. It really makes you work for it because it, mo- so how many authors would sit there and say the lake was off to the left? You know, there were the, 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 the leaves were falling from the trees. And this person, you don't know who's in this room. We don't even know where you were in the prologue. You were just, you know, around a blue light hugging each other and sacrificing everything. You really have to look, pull the details. They don't give you anything. But yeah, and I just, I think it's it's interesting the way, um, like you were saying, they kind of fell into the stereotypical descriptions of some of these characters. You know, how, how do they let you know Ron was there? Because he's hungry. Exactly. I'm like, okay, good. Ron, Ron made it. Hungry. Ron's alive. Right. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> but but and then, they have done it a better way? I mean, that's that's a way that everyone's going to automatically recognize is a stereotype, sadly enough. Yeah. Oh, I thought it yeah. was great. I, I, I don't think they could have done that any better. Uh, and you know what? He just saved the world. Give the man a sandwich. Right. And so... So you got, okay, someone's hungry, got to be Ron. And then you've got somebody chastising him for it, got to be Hermione. And then they mention Ginny specifically by name. So you know Ginny. And here is is my bet. Here is one of, this is when I knew this fic was something I was going to read in one sitting and worry about drinking later. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I love this fic. Everybody get liquored up. Oh, God. Except Kim. Well, she's underage. <laughs> this is the one line I loved when Harry hears the animal at the edge of the forest. He says, Hagrid would have known what it was. Yeah. So all he says, Hagrid's dead. That's how they tell you Hagrid's dead in passing. If you read that too quickly, it says Hagrid would know what it is. That's how they let you know that the first major character is not going to be in this fic. This person is is dead. You don't know how. You don't know why. Hagrid is gone. And it's just dropped yeah. into a sentence. Um, his eyes fell on the tower that had once been Dumbledore's. The headmaster's empty window glared brilliantly in the sun. Dumbledore's dead. That's how you find out. Just a reference to him looking up at, 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 the, at the castle. And in so many other fics, I really think you would just hear Harry sitting there saying, I wish Dumbledore was here. I wish Hagrid was here. Just, you you could just actually feel them duct taping the exposition onto the story. It's just dropped in. If you catch it, you catch it. And you read on to find out more. If you don't catch it, you're lost. Right. What do you think of the writing style in this chapter? Did either of you take note of just the way it's written, just the, the sentence structure? Well, I think one of the things that jumped out at me, and I, I will preface this by saying I am a, a bit of a, of a grammar Nazi, and I, which I guess is one of the things that makes me a good beta. It does not always make me a good reader, because things that are not written correctly tend to just jump out at me. And I think that's one way that a lot of authors show their age and their maturity level. Because sometimes, um, and, and this is not always, but more inexperienced authors, a lot of times younger authors are in more of a hurry to get things done. And they're not as careful about keeping things clean, about keeping their style consistent. And I think one of the things that I really, really liked about this entire story and one of the things that really 
kept me interested in the story is the fact that the style is so consistent is the fact that the writing is is really really good especially since two people were working on this and there's some even more authors you know guest write chapters later on but this isn't one person sitting down in their kitchen at the end of a hard work day and writing a story this is a collaborative and that's yeah. so much harder anyone who's ever written a group project with or a group paper with someone else that doesn't work well. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to get something to flow when you've got two different people trying to push ideas out at once. I mean, one person could be going one direction and one another, and they, they. It seems like one person is writing the story. One person, it's from one from one point of view. One thing I was just thinking, just you know, when I asked the question, sometimes, and I write. Anyone who ever reads anything I write knows I have seventeen commas in every sentence, and I have usually one sentence per page. I just write and write and write, and I don't like periods. Sometimes <laughs> I don't. I don't let. My father was an English teacher. I inherited the thing. I don't know where we start the story. The battle is over. Everyone is just catching their breath, and the writing reflects that. He, Harry is holding the note from Sirius, and he thinks to himself, this is a good letter. It is a good letter. Just very simple sentences. It was a good letter. That's all you need to know. Harry is not, you know, he doesn't speak much. He is very uh, invertive. It was a good letter. That's all you're going to get. That's all you need to know. He was yeah. just so touched that with everything that's happened, he made it. Sirius made it. He gets the life he always wanted. It's the life that he never gets in Joe Rowling's books. The story takes a different route and actually gives Harry something he wants to prove that even if you get everything you want, it's still really hard. Getting what you yeah. want doesn't solve every problem. And I just appreciated that. There were so many different ways he could have gone on about you know, how his life had finally come together. And despite all of the chaos and all of the sacrifice, he was able to... It was a good letter. That's all you need to know. Yeah. It's realistic, but it still has the happy ending that everyone wants. And that's exactly it. And you could so easily write the story. Harry goes to live with Sirius, and everything works out. The end. Everyone lived. No one died. Da-da-da-da-da. But no, people died. Things were lost. Everything's not perfect, but there is still a chance for everything to work out in the end. Yeah, and think of this. Harry lives. Ginny lives. Hermione lives. Ron lives. Sirius lives. Sirius didn't even live in the book. Sirius lives. <laughs> And can yeah. I just ask you this? When you, after you read the story and you went back into canon, did you have to really think Sirius is dead? Sirius is dead. Sirius is dead. I have to think that anyway. Uh, yeah, because of reading fan fiction before, I mean, and I swear that's going to happen to you when Deathly Hallows comes out. You will sit there and read that book and you will get confused because you will think, Wait a second. This isn't what happens. No, I did that. No, that what I did you're that. thinking about is a fanfic and not a canon thing. No, I did that. I did that. I read half. <laughs> I read Half Blood Prince, and I'm in that mindset, and I'm reading fanfics. And I went to the movie theater, and I saw Goblet of the Fire, and Hermione says, "You should write the letter to Sirius. She's on the train. You should write to Sirius. Sirius would want to know about." Your scar hurting. Everyone in the theater gasped. They all forgot he was alive. In that, yeah. Yeah. And it was like, <gasps> like it was, it was hilarious. I had to chuckle. It was, everyone was in that mindset, which is why I'm so glad that, you know, the book is at least coming out after, you know, Order of the Phoenix, because people would get so confused. Could yeah. you imagine if Harry dies in this book and then they go to the theater and he's still alive? Like, it would be chaos <laughs> in the streets. 
Well, we'll, we'll get into our uh, predictions about what will happen in Deathly Hallows in another episode. So we're, we're starting with the first chapter now. And the thing that I find really, really funny is that it starts off and you've got Sirius and Remus and they're at the house. And you've got Sirius who's just bouncing off the walls. He's so excited. And then you've got Remus who's half asleep. I just have to say, I drink 19 cups of coffee a day. Remus is my man. Well, I just... anyone did that to me in the morning... (laughs) It just seemed like from my experience and from canon, from everything that I can think about from canon, I would flip those two. Yeah. I would see Remus as the one who was up and awake and alert and serious as the one who's just like, don't talk to me until I've had my coffee. That is just the impression that I got from canon. And to see this in this story, to have that flipped over to where Sirius is the one who's all excited and bouncing off the walls and Remus is the one that's kind of dragging. To me, that was really funny. So let me ask you that. So so to to you, Sirius is is the everyday college freshman who doesn't want to take a class before 10. And Dude, it's, it's not that si- Sirius has always been like that. It's due to his years in Azkaban. I think, like, Fix written back, like, post-Harry post and everything, it, that, that would be how Cyrus and Remus were. Rem- Cyrus would be the one that's more outgoing and ready for that, and Remus would be the one more laid back. But given their life experience and... Exactly. His years in Azkaban, he he's going to be the one that's more mellow and more just because that's you know, have a hard time getting going in the morning. Yeah. That's interesting. I can actually see now that you say that. I can see Remus is the guy who wakes up every morning at four o'clock and goes to bed every night by eight thirty. I can see that side of him. Although I'll give it, I'll, I'll I'll argue it the other way too. When you go through tragedy, you do weird things. In the last week, he um, Sirius almost lost his godson. He almost lost his life. He almost lost the war. And now everything is happening at once. He doesn't know how to deal with it. He doesn't know how to be a godfather. He never thought he'd live to be a godfather. This is something which was never supposed to happen. It's almost a gift, and it's almost a curse. And he doesn't know how to deal with this. And he is right. absolutely hyper out of his mind. And I think Remus is much more of an accepting of the situation. This is going to be hard. I just need a cup of coffee. Everything's going to be fine. Pass me the paper kind of guy. So I can see it both ways, but I think you can look at the story and you, you can, you can make that work for you. Yeah. And then it gets into, you have, um, and, and, and this is something that I think is very much in line with the way these two people were characterized in Canon. You've got, um, You've got Sirius who's, or Remus who's saying, okay, we've got to get prepared. And Sirius who's like, what are you talking about? I've been ready for this all my life. We are good to go. And Remus is like, no, you need bedding. You need food. You need towels. You need food I mean, for Ron he's, alone. You need yeah, yeah. food for Ron. <laughs> in that scene, Remus, Remus makes me think of Hermione and uh, yes. Sirius is Ron. I mean, that's, yeah. that's how I can see They like, are the odd couple. They, I, yeah. I have to tell you, when I first uh, read this fic, I was about halfway through it, and I was thinking of it as Love Actually starring Harry Potter and Company. It just seemed like the type of fic where you had 15 different relationships going. I didn't know if there was going to be a romantic ship involving Remus and Sirius, and I didn't really make a decision on that till many chapters later, but 
they are every married couple I have ever met in this scene. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited. Shut up and pass the coffee. It's just that's <laughs> it. I mean, you can't right. do better than that. That is that. It, it, it was just so much fun listening to them, and it was really interesting too, just to watch the way. And um, I believe. We have um, some feedback from Jen in the forums on this. I'm not sure if we have it for this particular chapter. But just the way everyone in this universe is on such a short fuse because of everything that's just happened and how they don't really know. These are people they've known all their lives. They don't really know how to talk to each other. They don't really know what to say because they're traumatized and the other person's traumatized. And it's just kind of feeling your way around. There were a few references to... To Remus just trying to put out his hand and hold Sirius, and Sirius pulling back. And um, Jen in the forums pointed out uh, the scene where the, the moment when Arthur calls in the flu, and they both dive and pull out their wands like they're under attack because it's a sudden noise and it startled them. It's like a car backfiring if you've just been shot at. It just it scares the hell out of you, and yeah. it's just and it's so interesting, especially and, and it really troubles me to try and shift back into canon after I read after after I've read after the end because Sirius is just so perfectly channeled in this. This is how Sirius would be if he survived the story. He's so excited, he's so happy, but you poke him just a little bit and he unravels and he has no idea what to do. He has no idea how to take care of Harry. He has no idea how to assimilate back into the world. He's been pardoned for nine months and the neighbor across the street is scared of him. Right. And it re- you know it really hurts him. He just wants to he just wants to live this life and he just wants so little and it hurts him more than he will ever admit that the person across the street that he doesn't even know won't give him that chance. And I think that's why he's so eager to volunteer um when Arthur asks about the Azkaban project. First of all because of his personal experience with the um, Dementors and with being in Azkaban, but I think part of it, his drive is he's still trying to um, exonerate himself in the public eye. He is constantly, in the case of the Spick, he's constantly trying to do things to protect people, to better the public. And yes, part of it is based on his experience, but I think a, a big factor in his motivation is the fact that he is trying to get people to forgive him. And how much of it, because that's so interesting, because you, then you would have to ask the question, forgive him for what? Right. And it's it's the same thing, you know, you see people in, in real life that similar stuff has happened to. I, I mean, I can think of a specific example in uh, local news around where I'm from. There was a man that was uh, listed as a sex offender, actually, for a couple of years, like three or four years. And it was found out after the fact that his accuser was in fact not telling the truth about the particular incident that happened. And so the man was exonerated. He was, all the charges were dropped. His name was cleared, but he still had that stigma attached to him. And And it didn't matter that he didn't do what it was said that he did. It was the stigma that was attached to his having been accused. And I think that's a similar situation to what Sirius is going through. He has been exonerated, but in the public eye, it doesn't matter because he was still accused of having done that at one point. 
people don't automatically like change their minds overnight. People have been hearing, right? I mean, years and years that Cyrus Cyrus is a mass murderer. He's on the loose, hide, run, and now that it's like he's supposed to be an ordinary citizen, people people automatically go on what's natural for them, and you, they don't always think with the rational mind first. They think with what's been drilled into them. And think yeah. of, and just think of that too. Say you're a judge, and the defendant comes before you, and you find the person not guilty. There is an allegation after that that the person paid you ten thousand dollars in cash. No one will ever look at you and know with one hundred percent surety that you were not bribed. All you need is one person to accuse you of something, and there is always the smallest doubt in everyone's mind because people are so cynical because people are so used to people being bribed that all you need is that one allegation and people will never know. He sat in jail for 13 years. And then the Ministry of Magic, the same Ministry of Magic that was led by Cornelius Fudge, who tried to negotiate with Death Eaters, comes out and says he's innocent. We made a mistake, our bad. People don't care. People aren't going to trust him anyway. And it, it just hurts him so much, and you know it hurts him so much, but he needs to be strong for Harry. He needs to move on with his life. And every time he's he's bounding around that house, and I love the word they use, bounding around the house, you know, just as Padfoot, he is trying so hard to escape from that because he does not know how to deal with it. Right. And it, I would it agree seems with that. to me like he's trying to keep busy to avoid, like, like when those moments that he does fall back and remember the past, he's trying to keep from dwelling on it because... I, I mean, a lot of people have this mindset, if you don't dwell, if you dwell on it, well, then everyone else is going to think about it, too. So if he forgets about it, then maybe everyone else will as well. Right. And, I mean, and in a way, he he is grieving. He's grieving for his friends that he's lost. He's grieving for the life he never had. And, you know, you don't automatically get to acceptance on the first day or week or month or year. He is he is grieving for the life that he didn't have. He's grieving for the friends that he's lost and for the time that he's lost. And that's not something that you can just get over. He is still, and a lot of people, when they deal with grief, they deal with it by distracting themselves. And that's I think it's a good example of what he's doing here. He he focuses on on these little things. He focuses on Harry coming. He focuses on. Uh, the Azkaban project, and it's to keep himself from dwelling on all the things that he's lost. And isn't it so interesting, too? He asks Remus, why does it feel like there's still a war on? Yeah. And it's interesting, too, and there's references to Harry doesn't want the war to be over. He doesn't know how to live during a time of peace. He's never done right. it. It's scary. And, and every character, every single character in this fic is broken. Yeah. All of them. And it's just so interesting to watch. How do you heal yourself when you're trying to heal the person sitting next to you who you care so much about? Or how do you heal yourself when the person that you need is no longer there? It's just, it's, it, there's right. every single character down the line, no exceptions. It's just so interesting to just watch how all these characters that Joe Rowling created, or most of them are characters Joe Rowling created, pushed in directions they've never been pushed in before. And it's like bumper cars. You're just watching them bounce off each other and you're just watching what happens and how Arabella and Xenia think they would respond and they are dead on. They channel her so perfectly. Yeah. And I think another thing that I really think they've done really well with the characterization of Sirius is the image that I got of him was almost being like manic. 
he he goes i mean he's bouncing off the walls because the kids are coming and then he's upset because of martin lewis and his reaction and then he's talking to arthur and then he's sad again and then he's excited because he's going to go prepare and then it gets into the kids are two minutes late showing up and he's freaking out you know they've, they've kind of captured that they're, they're letting us know he still hasn't come to terms with what's going on just like everyone else exactly and it's so interesting to think about he's taking care of harry and harry's probably the only character in this fic who is more screwed up than Sirius is. yeah it's it's they need each other so much and i and i love how he says it james shouldn't have left him with me how can i help him get through all of this how can i explain it to him harry defeated voldemort how do i explain to harry what's happening like he's a four-year-old child who doesn't understand death it's it's just so interesting his perspective and it's so interesting how remus adjusts his perspective to to slide in with what Sirius needs how each of these characters pairs off and help someone else. And they kind of, it's like the game where you back up into someone else and help each you help each other stand. It's just so interesting to watch. Why don't we move on a little bit to chapter two and okay. um, starting with Bill Weasley um, in much the same situation. He is alone. He is lost. He is scared. Literally. He does not know where he is attempting to find Charlie. Uh, what did we think of how this chapter started? I think it's really interesting because you've got these two juxtaposed characters bill who's coming in and he knows he's the bearer of bad news and then you've got charlie who's just exuberant and he's happy and he's excited um, to see his brother and it's just i think it's really interesting the way that they've opposed those two characters it was interesting too i was a little thrown off by the way this this chapter actually began that's one of the few times uh, in this fic, I've had that reaction to it. And I think it's just because they were just starting out and it's so early in the story. It just, it came across almost, not poor writing, but it just, it came across as awkward. You have Bill ducking for days, the dark curse shields, trying to find his brother. And all of a sudden, it's literally like he trips over Charlie. And it was one of the few times in the story where they actually tell us what to think instead of show us. Yeah. And I think they could have done a better job to show us how lost he was and to contrast that with what we just saw of um, the Lupin Lodge and how lost those characters were. It brought me out of the story a little bit, but it brings you right back in. I just wanted to comment on that. It was a little, it was weird. It's like, I'm lost, I'm lost, I'm lost. And you can trip over the person you're looking for in the middle of a shrub. It just, it came across as a little uh, interesting <laughs> there. Now, um, I just wanted to bring this up too. Um, just Kim, you're the newest reader of this of this fic so you're this is most fresh for you what did you think of this chapter when we got into it i don't know there was there was a lot of things in this chapter i i really either didn't like or really just didn't expect i mean bill coming in and everyone surrounded by war and then charlie just being completely it's it's like it's like like you said it was kind of awkward to me especially considering all that's going on and then at that time like i mean i know as the first reader the first three chapters you just keep jumping place to place. And, I mean, they do – I mean, once you get to the end of the chapter, you figured everything out, and so you're starting to put everything together. But, I mean, to a first-time reader, at times, it can get really confusing because you're like, well, where did that come from? Yeah. Yeah, one of the – just to give an example, too, Bill travels for days through Dark Curse Shields. He's walking right underneath dragons he can't see. He trips over Charlie in the shrub. And they, they go underground into the, into the giant hollow mountain. And it's so evident 
Bill had to come for a reason. Something has happened. Something terrible has happened. He implies something terrible has happened. And I know what they were trying to convey. They were trying to convey that Charlie understood that and didn't want to deal with it and didn't want to process it. But it came across almost as though Charlie was slow and was avoiding it. He, he was smiling. He was, he was joking. He was cracking jokes. And it just, it seems like that it was just a little bit too heavy handed. And I don't think it really channeled uh, the character of Charlie too well at that point. It just seemed like he, he didn't, not like he didn't care that something had happened, but Char- it just Charlie, seemed like he was slow. Charlie was a Mary Jane in this chapter. Like all the, most of the characters have been, are so far have been very dynamic and very different, but Charlie, Charlie just kind of, fit into a mold. He really didn't come across as a person. He just came across as a stereotype. Yeah, I and I had and I had difficulty even channeling the stereotype because it just seemed like seemed like either you're going to want to, you know, grab Bill by the collar and say, What happened? Was it dad? Or you're going to want to pretend that maybe you didn't hear something. It just seemed it just it was a very odd uh, one dimensional characterization and he snaps out of it and he gets better. It just it just kind of graded me the wrong way and it was just such a contrast to chapter one that it just it was, it was just very difficult for me as a reader to read one and then jump into two and follow or to not be pulled out of the story i i just thought that uh what did we all think of uh fleur fleur's introduction to the story you know that was something that i really uh really thought was quite perceptive of Arabella and Xenia when they wrote this because, you know, keeping in mind that this story was written after the completion of Goblet of Fire, which was the first introduction of Fleur Delacour. We had never met her before. We had no idea that she was going to come back and play any kind of role in the story. And she was 17 years old. You don't think, oh yeah, Bill Weasley. Right, exactly, because there's a huge age difference. And the only... They They didn't. There was one mention of Fleur eyeing Bill appreciatively over her mother's shoulder. And I believe that is like the exact line in the book. But it just said that basically she was checking him out. And that's all that they say about it. And I think it's interesting. Is is it in fan fiction? That seems to be the most popular person to pair Bill with, though. I mean, I that's know true. most most fanfics I've read, read that have Bill and or Fleur in them, those two are together. Most people don't put Bill with an OC. Bill is with Fleur. Even well, they all read line. after the they all read after the end. Or or another concept is in Order of the Phoenix, they make a reference to Bill tutoring Fleur in English. But they didn't and have so it. you have to stop. Not in this particular story, but in a lot of stories, they were written after the completion of Order of the Phoenix. And that's when the whole Bill and Fleur ship really kind of took off. Um, There were a couple of Bill and Fleur pieces written before that. They kind of clued in on that, that one little reference of her checking him out. But there weren't really that many until after Order of the Phoenix. And I think it's really interesting... um, the way that it specifically says in the story that she recognizes him from the Triwizard Tournament. Good memory, and too. And it's huh? that, that uh, yeah, yeah, it's that, I mean, I know I've done it. You know, you see someone that you knew a long time ago, and maybe it was someone you had a crush on, and they come up to you and they say, don't I know you from somewhere? And sometimes you don't want to really indicate maybe that, you were as aware of them as you were. She's like, yeah, maybe I think we might have gone to school together or something. You were the guy I was checking out at the Yule Ball, right? Right. I mean, <laughs> and it really feels like she just kind of says, you know, she just kind of says, yeah, I know you from the Triwizard Tournament. And 
I just think it's really interesting that even in this situation where obviously this is a very traumatic thing that's just happened to this family, you know, she's still just kind of like, yeah, because I know you because I saw you back then and I thought you were hot. You know, it's that kind of image, or at least that's the image that I got. I can like he must have been really hot at the Yule Ball for her to remember him in a cave in Romania <laughs> three years later. Right. Maybe it was the. It had right. to be the red hair, though. It's the red hair and it's the ponytail. Who else has that? Exactly. But I just want to say one thing too about the character of Fleur. Reading her in the book, you think one of two things: she can, she is the champion of Bobaton. Does she win anything? Does she come in? You know, does she beat anyone in 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 the Triwizard Tournament? I can't remember. I just, she comes in last in every contest, doesn't yes. she? So yeah, she, she, yes, she does. Yes, yeah, so she's not what we shall call an overachiever. And every time she speaks, you can feel the characters rolling their eyes. So this is not a sympathetic character to the reader. Right. This is a filler character. And Arabella and Xenia make her into someone that you enjoy reading. This is someone you care about. It's it's just, you know, kudos to them for creating a character that you like so much more than the character you you read in, in Joe Rowling's novels. That's not automatic kudos to Arabella and Xenia and automatically bashing Joe. I mean, some fanfic authors write Draco Malfoy to be a perfect gentleman, and that characterization is is flawed. But in this case, they take the character, and they age her three years. She's lost a sister. She's obviously tremendously talented. She's working for you know the good side. She, too, is broken, and they make her... Like so many people you meet after you graduate college, the person who they humanize her. Yeah, you used to be a jerk in college, but I like you so much better now. I mean, it's it's yeah. I give them credit for for finding that in floor, and it, it it just she's really fun to read in this. Yeah, and I mean, and another thing that I think is really interesting about this chapter is that you know you start off in Romania at the the dragon camp, and then it picks up after the war and we're still at the same place and it's obvious that things have gone on and maybe they've bill has obviously moved on and come back to this location i just think it's really interesting that you know it brings you back to these same two characters and you get to see their interaction in in a non-wartime environment yeah how far it was four months apart is that right yeah the two parts of the chapter are four months apart now does it mention where bill was that time because it references he was sleeping on charlie's couch for a week so he left and then he came back and if it was a week that coincides with the end of the war so he came back when the war was over presumably to go find charlie or or to check on charlie or for whatever reason so he we can assume then the bill leaves the camp and then returns when the war is over. Right. And then we get into Bill and it's possible that Bill was in, was in England, was at Hogwarts at the final battle. And maybe he's on his way back to Egypt and decided to stop in in Romania and see his brother. And then you see, okay, he's given this opportunity to transfer to the London branch of Gringotts to help with the rebuilding effort. And, and then you get this whole, it goes back into the, issue with the Dementors and with the public's response to Arthur Weasley, who is now the Minister of Magic, and how they're reacting to what's going on and um, the issue with the Dementors being loose. And that's how we get the older Weasley boys coming back to um, to London to help out with the situation. And um, we also get introduced to uh, Penelope, 
who uh, Penelope Clearwater, who is mentioned in canon as being Percy's girlfriend. And we know from the beginning of this chapter that Percy is dead. And then we bring in Penelope. And I think that adds another aspect to this family dynamic is that the Weasleys have taken on their son's widow as a member of the family. And just and, to back up just, just to canon, there's a few references to Penelope in the earlier books. I believe it's Chamber of Secrets. I believe she was actually petrified by the Basilisk. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, so she was. That, that was her claim to fame. I don't know if we really hear from her. You know, from there, I can't recall um, in the canon. Do you remember, Kim? Does she pop up in canon at all after Chamber of Secrets? I, I believe there is more than one mention of her. But yes, that, is the, that is the moment that is really that most people would remember. Isn't that sad? Your one claim to fame is you got petrified by a basilisk. Yeah. Well, another thing, y'all, like just sitting here talking about and you're, you're talking about the coming back of the older Weasleys, it makes me realize to the readers that are reading when I am, like with me, who haven't finished the story yet, we still don't know anything about the twins. We don't know anything about right. the twins. And let's just, because we've kind of danced around it, let's talk about this. Percy Weasley dies. How many fics do you read where Percy Weasley always dies because nobody likes Percy and nobody cares if Percy <laughs> dies? And you don't want to lose the twins because they're your comic relief. You don't want, maybe you'll lose Charlie or you'll lose Bill, but nobody because cares no if one... Percy lives because he's a pain in the ass. Well, I, I think it's more you, you get into the, the, the law of averages and things like that. You know, the fact of the matter is there are nine Weasleys mm-hmm. and this is a war. And, you know, probability clearly states that in all likelihood, not all of the Weasleys are going to make it through this fight. If, if it was and, the Brady Bunch, though, Percy is cousin Oliver. He is the, he right. is the red shirt from Star Trek. You know, he is the one that the readers. <laughs> He's Ensign Ricky. He is Ensign Ricky, <laughs> and they don't and they don't care about him. But what this story does is, I, and I love that it does this. They kill Percy, and they factor that into the story. The first thought that they have, and they all dance around this and no one wants to admit it but they all had this thought that if it had to be someone maybe it would be Percy or maybe I don't feel yeah. so bad because it's Percy and that just kills you that you're so your your brother has died but thank god it wasn't my father right and you never and, and even that. what I was going to say is in the family dynamic you hear about okay there's Bill and Charlie and they do stuff together. And then obviously the twins are the match set. And then you hear about Ron and Jenny. And so who's the odd man out? It's Percy. And I think that is one of the reasons why people tend to kill him off is because he really doesn't have a counterpart. He's, well, he's, he's the one Weasley that if he dies, the Weasley family could still pull back together and live, go on with life. While if the Arthur died, the Weasleys... Wouldn't, I don't think the Weasleys would ever recover from that, while Percy's death is Our one mom. that everyone could get over in time. And you have to love how they do it. They don't, you know, have him die, you know, defending Cornelius Fudge. They don't have him die, and even they, they don't even have him die to make all the other characters feel bad because they're not as sad that he died, and they're grateful it wasn't their father or their favorite sibling or their mother. Right. They have him die. 
realizing he was wrong. He admits he was wrong. He's coming back to his family. And when the Death Eaters capture him, unlike so many other characters in the fandom and in the canon, he is tortured and he will not give up his family. Right. And so many of them, Ron, the twins, Bill, Charlie, so many of them were so furious at him, likely, for his just steadfast obedience to the ministry and how many of them wrote him off. And look, at these are characters who admit to themselves that they are sorry they lost a brother, but they feel terrible because at least it was Percy. And they feel terrible about that. But these are siblings who who have him that low in their priority list. He dies defending them. And yeah. no one ever would have thunk it. And he's, le- he's left behind a grief-stricken widow. And it's a grief stricken pregnant with a widow. And and that, that can't make it better. And yeah, it's, it's just, it, and then, cause you can tell Arabella and Xenia are looking right at the reader saying, when you found out it was Percy, your first thought was, huh, good for us. Huh? We, you know, no Percy in the story. And she's talking to the reader. She's looking at them and she's saying, this is what you expected us to do. You expected us to kill Percy. You had these preconceptions. Now imagine this. Don't you feel like crap? Because that's how all of his siblings and maybe even his parents feel. Yeah. And and one of the things that I think is really interesting about this, um, the way these chapters are structured, is that for this beginning part of the story, you know, we start off with the prologue where it's just kind of an overview. It's not really specifically the expecto sacrificum and the first is not really from anybody's perspective. It's just kind of, a, it, it mentions people in passing. And then we get into the first chapter, which is specifically uh, characterizing Sirius and Remus above anything else. Then we go into the second chapter and it's basically, it's Bill and Charlie Weasley. And then we get into the third chapter, which is where we really see Harry and Ron and Hermione and Ginny for the first time. And that's when, we actually learn a little bit more backstory on what they have personally been through. And we get into the third chapter and starting with Ron and he's talking about how it's, he can think about Quidditch, you know, he can, that, that can be a big worry for him now. And it couldn't be like that before. And we find Hermione in the kitchen and she's trying to make a pot of coffee. And this is probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire story because it's something that she cannot do. She is not a supermodel. She is not glamorous. She is not someone who can do everything in the world and knows everything about everything. You mean she can't make coffee? Right, right. You know, it's, it's, this is Hermione who they ask about everything. I mean, if, if you don't know how to do something, Hermione knows how to do it. And here she is and she can't make a pot of coffee. And, and that, is to me that is just so funny and it makes me want to laugh. And then you get into the reason why she wants to have the pot of coffee and it's because of her parents. And this is the first time that we learned that something has happened to her parents and that they are in the same kind of state as the Longbottoms, having been tortured to insanity by Lucius Malfoy. And she wants to have that coffee because when she was growing up, her mother made coffee. And it's the smell. And I think that touches on something that a lot of people don't really realize is the connection between smell and memory. And I I think that's something that Arabella and Zenya are really good about pulling in aspects of 
of real life. They're not just making a bunch of stuff up for the fact of the story. They touch on a lot of things that, you know, people don't really think about sometimes, but, but they're true as well. And I just want to quote now, this is from Jen in the forums, uh, actually referencing that exact dialogue about the coffee. Uh, Jen writes, I just want to say how much I love this bit of dialogue. I'm one of those people who needs the smell of coffee in the morning to really feel like home. I can make it through a week without it, but come Saturday and Sunday, I have to make a pot just to have the smell. After getting married, you realize that there isn't anyone there to make it feel like home anymore, so I have to do it myself. Hermione has lost her parents. These are the people who, for presumably the first 11 years of her life, gave her direction. When she went off to Hogwarts, she gave up that direction, and her parents didn't understand where she was going, but they gave her permission to go, and she started doing things for herself and feeling her way around and bonding with Ron and Harry. And all of a sudden, she's 18 years old, she's graduated from Hogwarts, she saved the world, and she is now the caretaker. She is now the guardian of her parents who are in this position because indirectly of her choice to join the wizarding world and talk about being broken. She is feeling somewhat responsible on some level for what happened to her parents. And all she wants is for the house to smell like it did when she was at home. And on on top of the fact that she feels responsible about this and the whole situation, you have to also take into consideration, you know, She is now graduated from school and moved on. And once you are grown up and on your own, there's no one to make it feel like home for you. So I I really think that this scene would have been similar with her making coffee, whether or not her parents had been tortured to insanity. Because it's, it's that little way, you know, they have not had normal in their lives for so long here. And this is one little thing that she's trying to do to get normality back. Take it in a slightly different way. One of the strengths, I think, of, of, of Arabella and Xenia's writing in this chapter is that everything has a reason. This isn't comic relief that, Her- that Hermione doesn't know how to make coffee. The question is, why does she want to make coffee? She hasn't drank it. She needs the smell yeah. of coffee. And I just I just love that. It's You think you know why the scene is here, and there's just a completely other reason it slams you with. And I just want to um, take this moment to say one thing. I had a little bit of trouble with the way they introduced what happened to Hermione's parents in the story. And I just want to preface uh, my criticism on that by saying, if you're judging an essay and you know that Tim Russert of NBC News wrote it, and if you are judging another essay and you know that a journalism student in college wrote it, you're going to judge them differently. I am judging yeah. this chapter against Arabella and Xenia's collective works. So I'm going to judge it very harshly because they are just that good. So I don't want it to right. come across like I'm bashing them because it's just so good. What we were saying in chapter one and, you know, through some parts of chapter two, how they just drop into the story, you know, little tidbits. Hagrid would have known what the animal was. Dumbledore's vacant office. Uh, Arthur Weasley, he's lost his son. Uh, you know, not knowing who's talking in the scene or where they are or why they're there. It seemed like there were so many opportunities in the scene to just reference the fact that something happened to Hermione's parents. And I feel as though they went the cliched route and they sat down and had a talk with the reader. Well, you see, Hermione's parents were attacked by Lucius Malfoy and the Death Eaters, and they're at St. Mungo. And it just seemed like it was, for, we, we got used to them, you know, 
dangling the carrot over us and we're trying to jump for it and all of a sudden they're throwing it at us. I just thought maybe just with that one, you know, little revelation, they could have slowly strung it out and made us wonder what happened to Hermione's parents? You know, why aren't they there? And maybe I'm making too much of that. Maybe there was only so many different ways they could explain that to the audience. I just felt like it was too easy. The reason that they did it that way is because, you know, with with some things like mentioning a death in passing, you can do that and it, it doesn't really affect the outcome of the story. But with the condition that they're in and the fact that it, they were put there specifically for a reason, I think if they tried to, like, drop the hints and draw it out the way they've done in the past, it would take way too long to try and and drop the hint so you get all of the backstory that's involved there. And that's I, I really yeah. think the way that they did that is the only way that they could get it done in a time efficient way. And that's fair too. No, that's fair too, because then if you drag it out more slowly, you lose some of the impact of knowing exactly it, what it is and understanding why she needs the coffee smell and why Ron, you know, is being so good to her. And yeah, maybe that's fair too. Maybe I'm just looking for criticism or there should be none. It just seemed like maybe even if there was like a sentence that was a little different, maybe I wasn't looking for that much. Like it's, it's actually more practical on that part because people, people are only going to want to hear so much of having like this, everything kind of just hinted at, hinting at every once in a while, you just want to be told something straightforward. And I think it's, I yeah. think they did that partly in interest of keeping their readers because I know as a reader, if they keep me having to sit there and guess every little thing that's going on, I'm going to stop reading just as the same way as if they sit there and spell everything out to me like I'm a three-year-old. So what did you think of that yeah. scene with the coffee? Did you think that was just, that was a very good way of getting it out there of what was happening or? I, I, I think they did it a good way because I mean, after, I mean, like I said, in some things it is good to sit there and drag it out and keep you guessing. But after a while, the same thing all throughout the story is going to get old. You have to yeah. mix it up a little bit. I think one of the good things about this particular story is that, you know, yes, there are, are bad things. There are sad parts of the story. But they always manage to kind of bookend it with something funny. And it's it's like, you know, you first see Hermione and she cannot make coffee. And then it explains why and it's a little more somber. And then you see Ron do it and it's just second nature for him to do it. And And I think that that's something that I think a lot of fanfic authors take for granted. And some of them have done stuff like inserted some kind of wizarding life skills class that they have to take that it basically, it, it accounts for all of the magic that you learn from your family. If you're from a wizarding household, I, I love how the example that they use of making coffee, it's, you know, you could almost look at that similarly to someone who maybe grew up in a house where they didn't know, you know, their parents just took care of everything and then they go off on their own for the first time and they want to make a pot of coffee, but they can't figure out how to turn on the coffee pot because they've never had to do it for themselves. And I just think that that scene is so funny because of that image that I get. I was just so grateful that Ron didn't hold it over Hermione's head that he could do something that she didn't. I thought that was very big of him. Yeah, I just respect the fact that he, you know, was very nice and gave her her space and didn't want to, you know, in any way make her feel like less than a perfect witch. So I just, I, I just want to slap her on in the back for that one. Job well done. 
and yeah. I take that, and I'm always like that when I'm, you know, out with Danielle and, you know, I do something better. I never hold it over her. So I just, I, I feel some kinship with, uh, with Ron right there. Yes, I, I agree. They did, they did something well there. Um, one thing that I think is, is interesting the way that they, they bring it up in this particular story is, um, Hermione refers to this as being, uh, their first summer really together. And honestly, it's probably our last one. And, uh, Ron's like, come on, what are you talking about? And she just kind of backs away from it, says, oh, well, you know, it's, we're, we're, we're going to have jobs and, and things like that. And kind of get the impression from that maybe she's got something up her sleeve that she's not talking about. And it's so interesting because Ron's first reaction is, you're not going anywhere. We all need to stay together. You, you just, you just have to stop and think about that because it's one of the arguments that Hermione also makes. We can't get rid of Ginny. Ginny needs to stay with us. We all need to stay together. And within, you know, moments, Ron is, advocating for Hermione to become the assistant to the ambassador of magic and which would cause her to leave for weeks at a time. And you can, you have to love the moment where he mentally slaps himself. What are you doing? You're getting rid of her already. And when you've gone through trauma, you grab onto everyone else in the room and you don't let them go. Yeah, exactly. One thing that I wanted to say um, that I think was really funny that they bring in, in this scene is that Hermione tries to do the coffee spell and nothing happens. And Ron says, are you sure that's a real spell? Which is a direct line out of Philosopher's Stone. It's the fir- It's one of the first things. It's she the says first thing that she says to him, pretty much. In and so train. here he is, and he, and he repeats it back to her. And I think that's just so funny the way and, they did that. And think about it, too. It's your your Ron Weasley, your, your, and your... Your great grandfather's Hogwarts robes, most likely. You're going off to school. It's a time of peace. Everything's fine. This nose up in the air snob who knows everything with bushy hair who just starts going after you from the minute she meets you. Is that a real spell? You have dirt in your nose. Not a likable person by any stretch. And now jump ahead eight years. Completely in love with this person. She's lost everything. She has you. You, You're so dependent on them. And, you know, you would expect these characters to almost be walking on eggshells around each other, but they've just grown together so much that he completely goes after her for not being able to make coffee. He gets his just reward. And I just think that's awesome. Yeah. And um, another thing that I think is really funny is that the way they characterize Ginny in this story is so much more in line with the way canon Ginny has turned out than she was at that point in the story. This is written. That didn't exist. Right. She was, she was a background blip in the radar kind of character. And, you know, they picked up that she was going to be important and they made her into a very dynamic character. And I really think that's really interesting step a little further into the chapter and they get into uh specifically on the topic of the characterization of Jenny they get into her reaction to the news about her, their father they call Arthur Weasley the unofficial and apparently incompetent minister of magic and uh you see her kind of stand up and she's like wait a second no they can't say that and and then you get into the scene and uh, Arthur actually calls them with the flu and is telling them a little bit more about what's going on. And he was hoping to catch them before the news broke. And, um, and it occurs to me, this is all happening at the same time. The scene with Bill and Charlie in Romania is happening at the same time that they're having breakfast 
in England. Right. Because it's, it's interesting. You, you, you get so used to jumping weeks and months, but it's, it, this is all happening at the same time. And so, you know, we start at the beginning of Chapter 3. We start with Ron and Hermione, and we see that their characterization so well. And as we come to the end of the chapter, get into why Ginny was even involved in the Expecto Sacrificum spell. And it gives a little bit more characterization of Ginny. And I think that's really interesting the way they do that, because they give each character almost an entire chapter to develop, to give a little bit more background on where they're coming from and what they're doing. And I mean, I think that's that's something that they've done really well. Exactly. I just want to quote from, I'm sorry, I just want to quote from uh, Jen in the forums. I really love Ginny in the story. She's my favorite character because, well, I can just see a bit of myself in her. She gets over her absolute infatuation with Harry, moving into a deep love, the kind that you just feel for a family member or husband, and just stays there. I love how she stays very silent in the supportive, I'm standing here to be here, but I'm standing away from you to give you the space you need, but I'm still here for you because it's important for you to know that I'm here and that's enough for me at the moment kind of way. I love how she's extremely insightful. I know that in a lot of their chapters, I'm going to stop there because it gives away some stuff. And you're so right. This is canon Jenny in a fanfic before she even became canon Jenny. Ron can handle Hermione. Ron doesn't know how to deal with Harry anymore. He doesn't know how to fix him. He doesn't know what to do. He defers to Remus when Remus says give him space. Jenny cannot be told what to do. She's going to go. She's going to sit at the lake or she's going to go sit in the field and she's going to let Harry ride his broom until he is physically exhausted and she's going to walk back with him to the lodge and she doesn't care if her skin burns off. She's going to sit there and that is it. And it's it's such a great character. So well written. There's foreshadowing of what's to come and I'm not sure how far um, Kim's gone so I'm going to leave it there but just such uh, just a strong character. You really love her in in this chapter. She handles Harry so well where no one else wants to touch him. He's a hot potato but she just she does it so well. Oh, I, I definitely agree. I mean, Ginny, like everyone else just kind of skirts around Harry and just let Harry be, while Ginny was like, well, someone's got to bring Harry out. Someone's got to help him out. They can't just let him be, and he'll all, he'll all work out in the end. And it's interesting because Can and Ginny did become like that. She was the one who always got up in his face when he was being a butthead. Mm-hmm. And, well, they're the you know, It's the best scene. It's the scene. I think they're on the train. Harry's going to leave everyone behind. He's going to save his friends by getting away from them because he's possessed by Voldemort because he was a snake in the Ministry of Magic. And Ginny walks up to him, metaphorically smashes him on the back of the head, and says, I was possessed by Tom Riddle. Do you want to ask me what it feels like? Yeah. And it just makes him feel like two cents and good for her. And it's just, she's always been that character. So. For someone like me who and, and Kim, who's reading this after <laughs> we know Ken and Ginny, we're like, oh yeah, yeah, this is Ken and Ginny, but you just, it, it, we have to always stop and remember, this was, this was before Ken and Ginny. So we've come to the end of Chapter 3, which is our stopping point for this first episode. We hope that everyone has enjoyed our discussion. We and certainly have. We're going to read um, Chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. And we will get into discussion on those chapters for our next episode. Pulled a couple of comments off of uh, the forum for tonight's episode. You really want to know what you think. This will get boring after a while if it's just the three of us giving our perceptions on the chapters. We want to know what you think. We want you to 
enlighten us and to help hold the discussion. There's many different ways you can participate uh, in the podcast. You can visit our forums at potterfickweekly.com, post to the forums, and we will scroll through those and pull out interesting directions and interesting comments and, and read them aloud on the podcast. You can also email us at staff at potterfickweekly.com, where you can email uh, each of us individually, Ryan, Kim, or Rena at our names at potterfickweekly.com, or you can give us a voicemail using a program called Gizmo Project. So long story short, go to potterfickweekly.com, click on Contact Us, and all the instructions are right there. Again, we want to thank Mary and the Potters, and we want to thank Alain Zinia for allowing us to discuss this story, and we hope that you'll tune in again next week. Talk to you soon. And good night. We'd just like to remind everyone that this story is rated R for mature themes. Uh, discretion uh, is advised uh, with who reads the story. Um, actually, that sounds absolutely ridiculous. Let me just say that again. <laughs> I'm like, what the? Discretion Parental is advisement. Um, discretion is advised. Do not let small children or animals read this story. I'm making it sound like porn. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I'm like, no one read it. It's awful. Okay. All right, everyone, <laughs> calm down. This is serious business. Okay. Deep breath. <gasps> breathing out. Okay, and okay, we're doing we're doing very well here. I'm very excited. Okay. As a reminder, this story is rated R for mature themes. So, if uh, reading this story or listening to this podcast, what we discuss about this story is uh, a. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot. All right. Do you want to try okay. that again, but maybe use verbs? <clears throat> okay. Yes. Trying that again. Just a reminder, this story is rated R for mature themes, so uh, there might be a bit of... I can't do this. Kim, would you like Someone to Someone else is going to okay. do this. Kim, do it. All right. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um... <laughs> it's harder than you think. It is. All right, let me try this, it. This story is rated R for mature themes, so it should not be read by small children. If you're under 17, it's not like we can make you get parental permission, but that is required, or that is preferred. <laughs> Actually, here, how about this? Parental, this, is, this is, parental advisory is preferred. What the hell does that mean? Here you go. It I'll just on, read the warning that is on the story, okay? <laughs> Guys, it's how about on this? the wall. Okay. Okay. This story is rated R for mature themes, some violence, angst, and language at intervals. Harry, Ron, and Hermione and company are now 18 in this story, and they will be acting their age. And although um, the story is that. sorry, although the story is set um, in the f- all right, let me give it a try. Although this, the authors have done their best to stay close to the canon as possible, they have skipped ahead, and as I said before, this story was written before um, the release of Order of the Phoenix. So they had to create some of the story and things like that. They had to make it up themselves. Can I try? The story is uh, rated R for mature themes. It's an excellent fic. You're going to love it, but just... Um take some parentis oh. you're right this is impossible to say told you All right. this story is rated R for mature themes some violence angst and language at different intervals um, Harry Ron and Hermione and the rest of the Hogwarts kids are 18 and will be acting their age during this story 
it's a great story. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. We all did. But you'll need to keep that in mind. Um, and we hope that... <laughs> okay. Kim, you want to take another shot? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Forget are. it. I mean, I mean that's explanatory enough in itself. All right, all right, all right. All right. Everyone, take a deep breath. Okay, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this in one. Right. Ready? Okay. Ready? Go. All right. We're going now to the discussion of After the End by Arabella and Xenia. This re- this wreck is faded. <laughs> what? This wreck is faded. This wreck is faded. All right. <laughs> All right, one more time. One more time, we're going to get the thing, and this is going to be a 17-minute blooper reel. Okay. <laughs> okay, it's not my system. <laughs> <laughs> we're going now to the discussion portion of our show, where we will start by discussing After the End by Arabella and Xenia. Just a reminder, the story is rated R. So we hope you will enjoy the discussion. We certainly enjoyed reading this story. So let's talk about the prologue. <laughs> 